Hi friends, you heard the music. That means it's time for this installment of book news. Not a great story this week, but we're going to talk about author Salman Rushdie. He was attacked on August 12th while being introduced for a lecture in western New York. Witnesses say he was punched and stabbed multiple times. He was evacuated by helicopter. He had to go on a ventilator after surgery following the attack and wasn't able to speak until the following day. He was, uh, again, punched and stabbed roughly 10 times. He appears to have suffered liver damage, nerve damage, and damage to one of his eyes. The suspect has been arrested, but as of my time of recording, no motive has been discovered. Now, Salman Rushdie is a controversial author, admittedly, but he is respected and he does have numerous, numerous books out. I believe he's got at least a dozen books out. And this attack is very topical in regards to my show because... I've been doing episodes on banned books, and I'm going to continue to do them, highlighting different books that are people attempt to ban. And it's, it's another attack on free speech, people trying to silence this man's voice. Regardless of how you feel toward his work, it's horrific to attempt to take a man's life over, over books. And that's my honest feeling toward it. This is just another event in a series of attempts at harming and silencing Rushdie. Back in 88, the Satanic Verses was published. And it is it has fictionalized parts of the life of Muhammad. And it was considered blasphemous to Islam and to Islamic people. And at the time, the leader of Iran, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, he issued a fatwa calling for Rushdie's death. And for those of you that might not know, I'm sure you can tell by context, a fatwa is sort of a decree by the leader of the, the nation. So it's not, it's not the first time something like this has been attempted on Rushdie. And it's just terrible. Uh, I, I don't want to go on and on about it, but it's horrible. It's an attack on free speech. I mean, it just shouldn't have happened. It's as simple as that. With some things that get published and put out in the world, especially here in the U.S. within the last, what, 10, 15 years, between hate speech and controversial and flat-out wrong opinions and points of view. I, I know an opinion isn't necessarily wrong, but flat-out wrong points of view and beliefs about things that have happened. To have this happen to Rushdie on stage, um, it's, it's, it was a terrible event. I'm probably going to edit most of this out. I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't be wasting my energy calling certain people out. But um, but it's a horrible event, and personally, I have never read any Rushdie's any of Rushdie's books. 
but I don't wish that upon anyone, and I do wish him a speedy recovery. And that's all for book news this week. This episode is going to be a delightful chat with my friend Jay from the Okie Bookcast about Mouse. So please enjoy. Thank you. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sense of Shelf podcast. I have a special episode. This is part of the Band Book Club. So if you're here, keep it a secret from the Thought Police. We don't want them finding us. And on this episode, I have a special guest who I am thrilled to talk to. I'm going to be talking mouse with Jay Hall of the Okie Bookcast. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know about your your uh, podcast? Sure, John. Really excited to be here. Um, great to, to meet you and, and to get a chance to talk about a fantastic book uh, that we'll be talking about here in a few minutes. So yeah, uh, like John said, my name's Jay. I uh, have a podcast called The Okie Bookcast. The big idea around the bookcast is to introduce curious readers to their next great read. And so I interview uh, authors, booksellers, librarians. Uh, I actually had an interview with somebody who's like an uber reader who reads 150 books a year. We, we just had a conversation. But the goal of all of that is to introduce people to, to books. Uh, to give a chance to to hear about books they might not otherwise know about. And the focus for the bookcast is on Oklahoma voices. That's where I'm from. It's who I am. So that's the Okie in the Okie bookcast. And, uh, you know, lots of people don't necessarily think of Oklahoma as a place where great literature comes from, uh, but it is. There's a lot of fantastic authors and great books that come out of our state. So try to amplify those voices and let folks know about uh, the great work there. And then I also have, in every episode... I invite an Oklahoma author or librarian, for the most part, to come and just share a quick two or three minute review of a favorite book that they have. So the goal is that people are coming out of an episode, and my episodes are usually 35 to 40 minutes, with lots of new books to think about, with a new author they've never met before, uh, and just the chance to go check out some great reads. And that's great. And I do love your show, and I love the 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 pride in where you come from and how, how important that is to, to you and your show. Uh, but I put on social media that I would be talking banned books and I put up that I was anxiously trying to get my hands on a copy of mouse and you, you messaged me that you would like to talk about it. So here we are. Yeah. Um, for those of you unfamiliar, which I don't know how that's possible. Mouse is a graphic novel uh, written by Art Spiegelman written and illustrated by him. And it's, uh, it's about his father's experience, father and mother's experience in the Holocaust and their family's experience afterwards. And this was first published in 86, the first part, the second part in 92. And in 92, it won the Pulitzer Special Citation and Award and the American Book Award that same year. And then it was published as one unit, one whole book in 96. I'll give the blurb from the website for those of you who don't know. Mouse is a brutally moving work of art, widely hailed as the greatest graphic novel ever written. Mouse recounts the chilling experiences of the author's father during the Holocaust, with Jewish people drawn as wide-eyed mice and Nazis as menacing cats. Mouse is a haunting tale within a tale, weaving the author's account of his tortured relationship with his aging father, into an astonishing retelling of one of history's most unspeakable tragedies. It is an unforgettable story of survival 
and a disarming look at the legacy of trauma. Now, this was actually my first time reading it, and it, I mean, it, it, words can't express how amazing the story is. I'm already, I already enjoy, enjoy is a weird word to use, but I, I like reading World War II nonfiction. And so this being my first time reading this and just taking in the art and the story itself, it was, it was just beyond words. Yeah. Um, do you, do you remember when you first came across this book? So it, it's interesting. I um, was aware of it in the eighties and, and then again in the early nineties when it, it came out and was making a lot of noise, but I was at a time in my reading life where I was not really paying much attention to graphic novels. So I knew what it was. Uh, knew some of the buzz around it, but never picked it up. And it wasn't until actually this winter when it kind of came back to the the front of the conversation because of the ban in Tennessee. Right. And I was in a bookstore in Fayetteville, Arkansas, actually, and they had a table of banned books and it was volume one was there. And so I thought, you know, I've always wanted to read it. I've always thought about reading it kind of on a graphic novel kick right now anyway. So I grabbed it and, um, brought it home, sat down and it, I mean, in an hour, hour and a half, whatever it took to get through it, but I could not stop. I mean, I, I actually started it late at night thinking I'll read the first couple of sections and then I'll, I'll pick it up again tomorrow and just couldn't. Uh, once I got into it, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't put it down. And then as soon as I finished, it was on my phone ordering volume two and had it in <laughs> the next couple of days and right back into it. Same thing that in one sitting, uh, just had to to get through the whole thing. The the power of it is arresting. Like you can't you can't look away. You can't walk away once you start. It's just it's this snowball that just keeps rolling, and you have to right. stay with it until it until it finishes. Right. I think I, I I was doing the same thing. I I took a little longer, but I was doing the same thing. I'm like, oh, I'll read a page, a couple pages at night as I'm laying in bed. And I would have to get through an entire chapter yeah. or section before I could stop. And I'm no artist, but it's strange. The art to me is strange because it's not, it's not comic book art. It's not DC comics. It's not Marvel. It's, it's bordering on crudely drawn, like yeah. not to insult the book, but it's not super detailed. It's not very realistic, but it's so captivating in the, in the way it's drawn and written. Yeah, you know, Spiegelman was a, in the 70s, was kind of at the front of this avant-garde zine culture and was writing lots of kind of out there comics. And so I think that's where his his style picked up. It was almost in a reaction to or against what was happening in Marvel and DC with lots of color and things in the 70s got pretty psychedelic in a lot of those comics. And so this very stark, black and white uh, not really even much gray. I mean, it's, it's pretty much just yes, black or white yeah, on the page. Yeah, just line work almost. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, you know, he cross hatches instead of filling in and shading. It's, it's just this very stark uh, picture. And if you see some of his stuff from before mouse, that's, that's the style. That's how he drew. Uh, and I think a lot of it was, and some of it came out of the fact that, you know, in that zine culture in the seventies, black and white was much cheaper to print. And so they didn't mess with color. They didn't try because it was mm -hmm. just too expensive to, to put together and get out. Now, while we're on the topic of the art itself, um, I have the copy that I, I have the copy right in front of me. And I know you, I believe you had noted some of your favorite parts 
and um, panels. And to for me, for me, it was the bigger panels that showed like the bigger groups, whether yeah, whether they were at the um, whether they were at the concentration camp or even one fairly early in the book, which is very haunting when there's a group of the mice hanging in like the village square. Yeah. Those they're, they're very haunting. And I'm, those are the ones that really stuck with me more than anything. I think those are really interesting because he, you know, part of the point of using mice and cats and the, the different animals was to demonstrate sameness, right? The, this idea that they, that the Jews that, that the Jews were seen as, you know, kind of just this one thing, right? That every every Jew was was the same from the view of the Nazis, and so rank after rank after rank of mice that pretty much look identical was part of the point that that's how they were viewed by the people who were viewing them at the time. But I think it's really interesting how even in that very uh, intentional sameness, you see characterizations and you see. He, he does fantastic stuff with just facial expressions and yes. just the change of, you know, the set of a, a pair of eyes or the way that a, a mouth is, is, you know, flat instead of looking down or whatever, that you, you begin to get a, a picture of difference, even in the midst of this kind of homogenous view of, of, um, of a group. And, and you're right. Those are amazing because it is, it gives you, I think, a sense of the, the scope the yes. size of, of what was actually going on, how many people were actually impacted by what happened in, uh, in Europe. Yes. And I, like I said, going through, there's like the, the shot, the scene in the showers at the camp. It's always, mm-hmm. it's always the bigger panels. And um, those are the ones that really stuck with me and the art. I believe this was a random comic. I, I read where it was, where it was run. And now I, I, totally forgot to make the note but the the comic right in the middle the prisoner on the hell planet mm-hmm. that's like right in the middle of the volume i have and that's where he gets away from the mice and the cats and it's and it's a more real story and uh even in there it's it's a, that same art style but yeah. still just so captivating in in the way it's drawn and the black and white it, it just really brings you in Now, yeah, go oh, ahead. Um, no, 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 by all means. Well, I just I was thinking about the, you know, that Hell Planet comic and he, he wrote that about his mother's suicide. Yes. And that was the, again, a little bit before some of the other things that were going on with Mouse. And so I think it's just another picture of this was a style that he had cultivated and and was chasing after in everything that he did. Yes. And it's in that um, it's in that comic. At least I think that's one of the instances where um, you mentioned the banning which we can talk about that. And I'm, I'm pretty sure we can both go on and on about it. <laughs> um, it was recently banned in Mc, McMinn County, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And the school board voted to ban it due to inappropriate material. And they cited curse words and a naked character and removed it because of its unnecessary use of profanity and nudity and its depiction of violence and suicide. Now, mind you, they're complaining about the depiction of violence in a Holocaust story. <laughs> right. Um, now, we spoke about this before we started recording. Your 
in the world of education, how do you feel about the banning of books? Do you, do you think there's nuance to it in some instances, you know, it should be, it, it would be okay. Or are you, are you flat against it? It's a really complicated question. And I think one of the challenges is that we tend to, we tend to think about it in black and white. Um, speaking of black and white, right. <laughs> I think there is, but I, I think to, to universally say this is inappropriate or this shouldn't be accessed by any group of people becomes problematic because there, I, mouse shouldn't be sitting on the shelf of an elementary school, right? right. Because, right. because of the language, because of the, the things that are shown because of the violence, I, I get that when you get to junior high and, and certainly high school, you're talking about 16, 17, 18 year old students who are aware, should be aware if you know, the school system is doing its job, should be aware of the Holocaust, should be aware of a lot of the things that went on with it. And I think this is, so a book like Mouse, and I know you're asking me more generally, but I'm, I'm thinking in terms of this uh, particular instance, and then we can get more general. But I think a book like Mouse gives those students an opportunity to access some um, reality around something that for them is probably more theoretical in a way that they're ready and willing to accept it. You know, I, I have conversations with librarians all the time who talk about if, if what a student is going to read is a graphic novel, then by all means, put it in their hands because that's better than not reading at all. So if, if mouse gives a student an opportunity to see what the Holocaust to the extent that it can, but to, to see what it was about, to understand these were real people, they had real lives. Uh, this was a, a disruption of every part of the social order of the time, but also was brutal and horrific in, in what was done. And so you, you can't really have a depiction of the Holocaust that doesn't have those brutal and horrific elements. It's exactly. Just, it, it loses something in the midst of that. So to the broader question of banning books, I have always felt like it is my job as a parent. And I have four kids. Uh, my youngest is a senior in high school, so we've, we've walked this road. It's my job as a parent to help my kids make right choices for them in what they consume. And I know that's, that's not how everybody's family works. It's not, that's not how everybody works. But I don't think it's the job of, um, of a school board or a set of politicians with a particular agenda to make determinations about what is the best way for anybody to learn about something. Um, you know, I think there's a, a different argument to be made for public schools, but these books are also being banned in public libraries. Yeah. I have, are, I have a big problem with that. Yeah. That are state state supported. They're open to everybody. And that, that becomes a, a, a much more convert, much more complicated conversation. I think, John, as I, as I think through this, and like I said, I'm in education and I talk to a lot of librarians and educators, so I think about this a lot. One of the things that disturbs me the most, you know, I hear a lot of um, comparisons to Fahrenheit 451, right? The burning books. And I think there's a real difference, though. Fahrenheit 451 is a general books are bad. So they're trying to burn everything. They're trying to get rid of every bit of information so that the government can control exactly what people know. This is different. This is targeted. Yes. And as I think about, you know, you see these lists that have come out. And, and listen, Oklahoma is one of the top five states in the country for banning books. Like we're, we're on the varsity squad, um, <laughs> unfortunately. 
But you look at the list that come from Oklahoma, you look at the ones that come from Texas and some other states that have really focused on this. There are particular groups that are being targeted. There's a particular kind of information that is being held back. And I think that to me becomes the scariest part of this because it it makes it okay to say, well, you can learn about this, you can read about this, but you can't read about, and please hear the air quotes here, those people right. or that kind of thing. Um, so it, it just, it gets more personal, it gets more targeted. And I think when the government at any size, whether that's a school board or the U.S. Senate, gets involved in targeting separate groups or targeting groups to be singled out, we're in a scary place. No, I, I completely agree. And in the first the first episode I did regarding banned books, I mentioned that in my introduction. Like there's there's three types of books that seem to be banned. Historically it's always been like Fahrenheit four fifty one, nineteen eighty four, um, books where your lead character is basically going against the government, going mm -hmm. against the norm. And then there's books that tell the truth about how this country has treated people of color and books about the LGBTQ community community. Those, and those are the two more recent ones. Yep. And like you said, you're, you're targeting those communities and that's not right. And I, I, I said in that episode, it's going to lead to social problems. Like you're trying to, a certain community is trying to keep their children from experiencing and seeing these lives the, and hearing these voices that's just going to lead to confusion and pain and all sorts of other things down the road, because they're going to see these again with the air quotes, these other people. And that if, if there's no understanding there or empathy, which is something that should be taught, um, then, then it's going to lead to more problems. So I, I I've made it very clear that I'm against the banning <laughs> of books. Uh, and, um, and it seems even the kids that these, these families and, politicians are trying to protect our too, because this just came up again in Texas, this uh, mouse. And it was under consideration for banning in Katy, Texas, I mm -hmm. believe. And all the students, a lot of high school students in that county, they went and collected as many copies of these books, Beloved and Mouse and all these other books that are getting banned and they collected them so they could have them and have access to them. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, when when Mouse was first, you know, came back up in January, it went back to like number nine on the bestseller chart because it it raised it brought awareness back to something that really had kind of fallen off the radar. I mean, if you knew about it, then you probably had a copy um, or you know had read it at some point, and if not, you didn't and and really weren't thinking about it. But suddenly, here it is back at the top of the charts. Um, again, it was on a table in a bookstore and that's how I, I picked my copy up, but also then lots of libraries and, and different groups from outside of the places where it's being banned saying, listen, if you want a copy of this, let us know. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was really interesting that the, you know, the Brooklyn library is allowing any teenager in the United States to get a, an electronic library card so that they can get access to these books if they are banned where they live. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, someone told me. LA does the same thing. There's a fee, but I think, I think the Los Angeles um, public libraries do the same thing. And um, yeah, that's, that's definitely great that people are willing to go above and beyond to continue to provide these things. And you mentioned 
given like if a student's going to learn by a graphic novel, if that's how they're going to, if that's how they're going to um, consume and, and learn from it, then by all means, let's do that. And I was working at a bookstore near me a few years ago when they started with the printing of like classic literature in mm-hmm. graphic novel form. I started to see, you know, uh, Moby Dick, To Kill a Mockingbird, and all these classic books coming out in the children's section or in the young adult section in graphic novel form. So people would pick them up and, and start to see them earlier. And I really like that. Yeah. I think that's one of the great legacies of Mouse. It was really the first time, I mean, there had been graphic novel or comic depictions of classic stories of historical stories, but this was the first time really that a, a difficult story was told in this form, something mm-hmm. that was more than, you know, Washington chopped down the cherry, whatever. Uh, but an actual really kind of dark part of history was depicted in in this sequential uh, storytelling, this sequential art form. But since then, I think part of the legacy of that is the openness to begin to create stories like this in graphic novel form. So I think about um, March um, yes. that, that's been so popular. I actually interviewed um, Dr. Carlos Hill from the University of Oklahoma, who recently put out a graphic history of Emmett Till, who was a young man oh, okay, who was nice. lynched. Uh, yeah. and, and going through all of that, uh, all the, the situations around that. I have a friend who just worked with Oklahoma State University on a graphic novel about the Indian schools uh, here in Oklahoma, where Native American children were taken and um, kind of forced to get rid of some of their Native Americanness. And so here's, again, this graphic novel, a different way of presenting the story, uh, but a way that makes it accessible to people who might not want to pick up something with lots of text and a handful of pictures, right. but that, that demonstrates in a different way. So I think it's really, I think it's really cool that this, um, this novel opened the door for lots of other things to begin to happen and to talk about stories in a way that people who otherwise might not access them are able to. Yes. And um, George Takei of, of Star Trek fame, yeah. He he has one. Uh they called us the enemy, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And it's about his experiences during World War II when oh, in in the US they were putting uh the Japanese citizens into camps over here. Uh a story not really talked about ever in public yeah. schools. That's something I never knew about until I started reading about World War II myself. Huh. And uh so we can get back to Mouse after that long and necessary (laughs) sidebar. Um, This has been cited and challenged for, like we said, curse words and the nudity. (laughs) And the nudity to me is, I mean, to to anyone listening, it's kind of laughable to really try to ban this due to nudity. There's the one, the depiction of the woman in the tub during um, in the Hell Planet little interlude and there's the mice in the showers but in the mice in the showers you're not seeing anything the text goes across right and the the woman in the bathtub his mother who committed suicide it's it's almost like one continuous line there's no detail to it it's just silly like people and i I mentioned this again before people focus on what they can think on what they think they can get something banned for while masking the real reasons they're trying to ban it. And that's how I felt with that. Cause like you said, if it's in high schools, I mean, 
it, it's kind of unnecessary to try and ban it at that point. You know, maybe the, the, the middle school, I can, I can sort of understand it, but high schools and public libraries, I don't agree with the banning of some of these books. Well, I think it's easy to get, um, get cranked up about something that you may not fully know or understand. Uh, my guess is that there are a lot of people who are talking about the nudity or the violence or the language or whatever about this book who have never seen it. Yes. Who don't know what's there, but they've heard. And, and so in a, I think, well-meaning for a lot of these folks desire to protect their kids, they get on board with something that may not be exactly as it has been presented to them. Yeah. You hear nudity and your mind goes anywhere. Right. But like I, like we've said, it's, it's not, it's not detailed. It's not super detailed art. And it's his mother. It's a story about his mother committing suicide, which is so important to the whole overarching story that it, it, it's important for it to be in there. It affects him. It affects the whole story. Is there any, is there anything you would like to talk about regarding the book? Did, did you have a, is there a certain section or certain panels that, that, that you, that really stand out to you? You were mentioning some of the the panels that stand out. I I have two or three here, if I may. I think one of the things that strikes me about what Spiegelman did is he's creating this. Um, there's it's very stark, it's very bleak, it's you know black and white like we've talked about. But there is this subtlety to it that is really really interesting. There are it seems like there's always something going on in the background, right? Just off in the corner or just behind kind of the main conversation that advances the story or gives us a better picture of what's happening or, or what it meant for, for people other than just the main characters. And it happens almost right away. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of panels where I had to stop where something just caught me and I had to, not even stop and stare at the panel, but just stop and sit back for a second and soak in what I was seeing. And very early, like I think it's page two of the first volume, there's a conversation going on between Art and his father. Uh, and so we, we haven't really talked about that. A lot of the story centers around Art Spiegelman, who is the author, getting these stories about World War II from, from his father, Vladek. They're having this conversation and his father's actually on an exercise bicycle and in the midst of the conversation, there's a panel that shows the two of them talking. But in it, you see for the first time um, Spiegelman's father's tattoo from the camp. Yes. And again, something that super subtle. It's not right up there in your face, but it's there. And I remember just stopping and going, OK, this is the kind of ride that we're going on like this. This is what this is going to be, because it in just that little simple moment, so much is suddenly said. And the understanding that for, for Vladek, this is not just something that he experienced in the forties, but this is something that is with him every day, right? When he looks at his forearm, yeah, he has that the evidence reminder. of what has happened to him is there. And it, uh, it, it just, there's something about it that just grabbed me. I, every time I think about this, I go back to that moment into that panel and just the, the setup for what, what was to come. Um, uh, just real quick, that, that panel, I, I just flipped to that page. The, my copy I borrowed from, I work at a university, my copy I borrowed from the library at my university. And someone, whoever read this in the past, circled, like made a note on really? that page and drew an arrow to that tattoo. Yeah. 
um, I think about, so, so that's one that really grabbed me. The other, the other, I'll say the other a bunch of times because there are a bunch of them, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Another one that really at the beginning of volume two, when he is sitting at his draft table and yes. he's talking about the success of, of the first volume. So, as you mentioned, volume one was compiled and released in 1986 and then volume two didn't come out until 1991, 92. And so the the success of the first volume kind of led him to have to keep going and keep telling this story. And in the interim, his father had passed away. And so the picture is of him sitting at his drafting table and Throughout Mouse, he is depicted, he, he draws himself as a mouse because he's Jewish. But in those pictures, he's not a mouse. It's him, but he's wearing a mouse mask. And in, in the story, when somebody is trying to be something other than what they are, they wear a mask to try and, and disguise yep, themselves as that. All the mice would wear pig masks to, right. be, to come off as Polish. That's it. Um, you know, there's the conversation with his fiancee, later wife, who is French. And, you know, so she wears a mouse mask and, and kind of goes back and forth. But it's that picture of not quite being what they they want to be. And so you have him sitting at his draft table wearing the mouse mask. But then underneath him is a pile of bodies. And this picture of him struggling with the success of what he's accomplished on the backs of all these people who had suffered. And I think it doesn't really overtly say it so much, but I think there is this, this thing in his mind of what does this make me? If, yes. if I've, if I've done this and I've succeeded on the back of this horrific thing that's happened, what does that say about me? And as he's talking with his therapist and he's trying to decide how to move forward, that mask stays on. He doesn't revert back to being a mouse until it shifts and they go back into the interactions with his father. Yes. Yeah. I, um, I had a post-it note on that panel about how dark, but also about how dark the picture is. And it's almost like, I feel like it's might be partly, he feels like an imposter writing about this because he didn't experience yeah. it. Um, so that may be a little survivor's guilt. Um, but definitely he, he you, I mean, the, the whole page is stunning between him wearing the mask and then the pile in the bottom panel. But I think that's how I took it myself was he feels he he's questioning, should he continue this? Yeah. Is he, in, is, you know, is he piggybacking off what happened? Is he an imposter? Should he be doing it? But yeah, that, well, that, it, that whole page is, is fantastic. He even says in the middle of it that he doesn't know how to go forward. Like right. he doesn't know what's next because I think he's, he's questioning what should he do? Not just what can he do, but what, what should be done? Um, I'll, I'll give you one more and then we can obviously jump into a lot of these. Uh, there is, there's a point in, in volume one where, so, uh, Vladik and, and Anya, his wife send their son off to uh, live with, I think it's an aunt because they think he'll be safer there. Mm. And in the, the midst of kind of the, the ramping up of violence against Jews in Poland, um, they have a conversation with a nephew who ends up going to uh, a camp being, being taken to Auschwitz. And then in the next panel or with that, they also find out that their son has died. Yes. That they, they send him away to be safe, but um, he's, he's died. And there is this beautiful interaction between Vladik and Anya because Anya hits the ground and just says, I want to die too. Let me die too. And he gives this conversation about 
um, that, that you have to survive. You have to keep going. Um, he says, you know, we have to choose to stay alive, which that's towards the end of the first volume. And then the second volume is mostly what happens in, in Auschwitz and the other camps. And that theme out of that conversation seems to drive everything else that happens, that it's about surviving, but it's also about not giving up. Yes. That in moments where it, it looks like, you know, reason would say, listen, it, it's time to shut it down. Um, they just choose to continue to keep going. They choose to survive. They choose to find ways around the system or within the system to, to keep going. And I think so much of that springs out of that one very brief. I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautifully done, but this very brief yes. conversation about survival. Yes. I remember that part too. I'm a parent as well. So as a parent reading that it's, yeah. it's just hor horrific to imagine. I mean, the whole, the whole period in time is horrific. One of the ones that really stuck with me and uh, both the panels and the, the story behind it is right around like the middle of the book. They're talking about, it's a lot of the same stuff. They're talking about the, the violence against everyone and they're, they're speaking about when they took the kids, they took like toddlers, two or three years old. And it says some kids were screaming and screaming and they couldn't, and they couldn't stop. And it's, it's terrifying to even look at the picture. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the Germans, it says the Germans swung the kids against the wall and that I can't imagine the father telling art that story, like in real life and then having and then putting that down on paper yeah like just the emotions reading that even talking about it now it's really tough to get through yeah that's another one of those moments where you just catch yourself right you just have to stop and i think for those of us who are so far removed from from what happened uh and and most of us far removed from people who who were there uh, i don't know a holocaust survivor i've never known a holocaust survivor um to, to see the extent to which they were just completely dehumanized. I mean, that's mm. the kind of thing that, you know, a, a farmer would do to an animal that was trying to get rid of. And, and they were just not seen as in, worth any more than that. Uh, it, it's hard for us to imagine. And so it, I think it catches us in a really significant way. And it's even for people who, you know, read horror or read things that are, horrific where lots of bad things happen. There's something about the humanity of that moment that has to cause you to stop. Yes. Agreed. The, um, the panel, the picture when they first get to Auschwitz is again, not to take away from the horror of this time, but that it's a beautiful panel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The first time you see the gates and everything. I think that's one of the things that really, makes this what it is. Spiegelman's really good at what he does. And yes. the, the art is, it's simple in a lot of ways. We talked about it being subtle, but it's also, it's beautiful. And even the panels that are very difficult to look at are really, really well done. They're very artistic. They're very, yes. uh, I mean, they're beautiful, um, horrific. But the way that they're depicted is is amazing. And I think that's part of the strength of it is it's not the art isn't cheap, right? It's not thrown away that there's really time and care taken to 
depict these things that are very difficult. Yeah, I, I, I made so many notes on different panels throughout the book. There's um in the second volume, they're kind of bringing all the all the prisoners into the camp, and one guy's pleading and pleading, and in one panel he's a mouse, he's pleading, and he says, "I have medals from the Kaiser. I this. I'm a German. I'm a German soldier." And in the very next panel, he's a cat in the same same facial expression, same position. Yeah. And even in the story, it doesn't clarify if he if he was a cat or a mouse. They like, and it, I, I really appreciated that part too. And then it just the father says, "Well, they beat him. To him, they to them, he was Jewish. It didn't matter." Right. Yeah, all it such a stunning book. I I really couldn't believe it. And I had seen it for years when I worked at the um, bookstore and just never thought to pick it up. And then now I did. And <laughs> it was something. What do you think? Because one of the one of the things I think sometimes it gets lost is the story of Art and his father, Vladek, as he's wrestling with him to get these stories out. And I think it's such an important part of the of understanding the totality of it. What do you think about that part of it? We've talked a lot about the, the world war two side of it. I think it, I mean, art, art wanted to, it seems like he wanted to preserve the story. He wanted this history known. Um, but the, you know, there's, there's having to go through this because now he, he's trying to preserve this, this story and this history, but now he's, I guess not necessarily forcing the father to relive it and all these pains he went through, like losing the children and then going to the camp, then losing his wife. Um, so uh, it, it's a really, it's a really tough thing to answer. Not, not ever being in that, in that position, thankfully, but I, I understand why he did it. And um, it, it just couldn't have been easy to get through to oh, sure. a, as a son, putting your father through that. And then, also hearing it yourself for, you know, however many times you have now, or I, I think it's actually said he didn't speak about it a lot, but he was, Art was still aware of it and had probably heard bits and pieces here and there. But actually on a lighter note, one of my favorite parts is um, now anyone who has family or parents or friends of an older generation from another, that are from another country and still have the, that old world culture at yep. the beginning he's on the exercise bike he's in like slacks a button-up shirt and, <laughs> yep. and dress shoes <laughs> and that makes me laugh because i i know i know people like that you know i know people who mow the lawns in like a three-piece suit <laughs> right yeah now um were there any parts you didn't like because i actually just flipped to a part i I wasn't a fan of. It's a great question. Um, honestly, I don't, I don't know that there, there are, there are, are difficult parts, obviously. Um, but I don't know that, that I ran across anything that, that I was trying to get through quickly or trying to, um, trying to avoid. So I'm interested to hear what you, what you ran into. Uh, for me, it was it was almost toward the end of the whole book, at the end of volume two, with the hitchhiker oh, and yeah, the portrayal yeah. of the hitchhiker and the father's yeah. the father's response. I don't think it really 
it did i don't think it moved the story at all you already had an idea of the father uh and i that that was the only that was really the only part of the whole book i was i didn't care for i could have done without that you know i i actually read an interview where he was asked about specifically that and why it was there and his his response was that ultimately mouse is about racism ethnocentrism like what we're willing to do what people are willing to do to each other if they believe certain things about the other and he talked about the need to keep that in because i think he he debated it himself the need to keep that in partly because he he doesn't spare his father anything right uh, you know his, his father is not a sympathetic character from the way that spiegelman portrays him um and i think it he felt it was necessary for people to see that even though the lesson of the Holocaust for most should be that, you know, we, we can't single out the other and, and make them less than, than human, but that he hadn't learned that lesson, even though he'd experienced it. And so, you know, he, he still had those, those pictures and those images of a group that he saw as the other, even though he had experienced what he had. So you're right. It's, that's a tough thing to read through, especially after you've gone through everything else right? and you get to that moment. Um, but I think Spiegelman felt like it was important to to drive home that idea and also to demonstrate that we don't all get it. Right. Yeah. Like you're saying, even after what the father went through to still to still have that sort of prejudice. Uh, but yeah, per, that, that was the only part. I loved the whole thing. But then like those three squares, I was like, hmm. <laughs> didn't care for them. I don't yeah. I didn't think it forward. It moved the story forward or anything. But with that context, it does make sense. And I've, I've sort of been flipping through chronologically as we talk the toward the end of the book, this, the, the scenes with all the Polaroids that he finds, yeah. I really, fi I found that whole section to be absolutely beautiful. The story yeah. and the pictures and everything and the memories. Well, and I love that towards the end, he also includes the actual picture of his father. Yes. Uh, the, so the, the photograph rather than him being depicted as a mouse, it it's him. Uh, yep. in a, a uniform from the camp. And it, there's something about that that really humanizes uh, the, the whole thing because now suddenly you've, you've seen all these things that have happened and then it's like, bam, right there in front of you, it happened to this person, to right. this man. And right. you get to see him for who he is rather than how he's been portrayed. That just, there's something about that that, that makes it, that drives it home. Agreed. But yeah, all in all, I'm, I'm glad I picked it up. Uh, I'm almost mad at myself for taking so long to read it when I had seen yes. it so long ago. I had the same experience. Why did I wait so long? Right. And it, it, it's making me keep my eye out for March and for the George Takei one. Yeah. And another show, actually, I think just read and reviewed the George Takei one. I think maybe Two Idiots and a Dog. I can't remember. But I know I just heard something about it. Oh, within the past couple of months. So any, any final thoughts regarding Mouse? I, I just, I'd be interested to, to talk with you and, and to think about just some of the big ideas. You know, we've talked about lots of the, the details and the things that have happened. I think when I think about Mouse, as I've kind of sat back and thought, okay, what is this about, right? And obviously it's about fathers and sons. It's about family. It's obviously about the Holocaust. But there's also, I think, this element of, this this survival spark like this this willingness to to do what needs to be done and i 
it's bleak. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, undersell that it is, it's bleak and it has to be by design, but there is this thread of hope that just keeps showing up where even Nazis do good things and do kind things and do things that help some of the people in the camp survive, Vladik in particular, help them move forward, help them keep going. Uh, and it demonstrates, I think, that even in in the, the darkest part of this, there is still this element of humanity that drives people to do well and to do good by their, their fellow man when they can. Now, obviously, it's not all of them all the time, but there is this thing of the way they help each other and the way that they're helped in, in different ways by different people uh, that just this idea of, of hope in a very bleak set of circumstances seems to shine through really all the way through it. Yeah, there's definitely that whole, like you mentioned earlier, the, you, you need to want to survive. You need, you need that, you need that hope and you need to, you need to want to overcome. There's definitely that all throughout, especially when he finds out how close he is to, when the father finds out how close he is to his wife, they yeah. are separated and yeah. he finds out she's, you know, a mile up the road. And, and what he starts to do in order to help her and to be able to get closer to her. Yeah. And like you mentioned, the officers that do sort of help him along the way. I'm much more cynical in my view of that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they were being altruistic in doing it. I think they were doing it for their own benefit as well because he was sure. providing them things that they didn't have access to. Sure. Uh, but, I, but I get that point as well. There is still some humanity even, even in the midst of this horror. And even, even now when we don't experience that sort of thing, you need to still, you need to still have that hope and to see that humanity in people. Yeah. So as we come to an end of talking about mouse, uh, I do, I am glad I read it. I mentioned I've, I've normally read world war two histories and nonfiction. It's always something that interested me. I had, I had grandparents who served in the war. So it's always something that I've, I've liked to learn more about. And a lot of the best books I've, I've read in my life pertain to that. And even having all that background, like I mentioned the part where it says that they were, I, oh, it's tough to say again, swinging the children, hmm. even reading as much as I have, I, I never knew that aspect of the concentration camps. And uh, it, it was a horrific time, but I, I appreciate him putting it in this format, which we, we mentioned earlier. It's, it's a little more palatable i would say then then a book i'm holding up my hands you're the only one that can see it a book this thick you right. know okay so anyone who's familiar with jay hall and listens to his show he puts his guests in the hot seat every time every episode so i'm gonna put you in that hot seat now sir and we're going to ask you your final questions i'm ready um, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong and let's answer the correct questions. But I think you start with what's your favorite genre and recommend three books for the listeners. Yeah. Um, so you've, you've got the first question down. Uh, I, I told you earlier, just settle in because when you ask a book person <laughs> for three, then, then get ready. Cause it's going to be worse than that. I'll try and note them all and include most of them in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a huge sci-fi fan. Uh, if, if I have to pick one genre, that's the thing that I'm, I spend a lot of time with. It's science fiction. I read lots of other things too, but uh, science fiction is, is where I land. So I'll give you a couple of names 
and then a couple of books and, and we'll go from there. Um, one of my favorite authors, favorite current authors is a guy named John Scalzi. Uh, he's written um, a, a huge space opera called Old Man's War. That's six or seven books. Um, he also writes one-offs. Um, Interdependency is a, a, a recent trilogy that he finished. Uh, and his most recent book is called The Kaiju Preservation Society, which hits me on every level. It's about if Godzilla monsters were real and lived in a separate dimension and there was a group of people who were studying them and it's every bit as just bonkers and silly, but also really fun as it sounds. And uh, it came out earlier this year and I've annoyed all kinds of people saying you should read Kaiju Preservation Society. Right. I've, I've heard you recommend it on our friend Ray's um, Being Bookish podcast. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so John Scalzi, Andy Weir. Uh, who wrote The Martian, yes, and I his more recent book is uh, Project Hail Mary. Both fan, he's got some others as well, but those two are fantastic. Uh, I love also, the Mar I love The Martian. If you can get through the the NASA and science jargon, it's right. a fantastic book. Well, and you know, one of the things about that is Andy was literally a rocket scientist, mm -hmm. and so he's writing what he knows. Uh, but yeah, it you've got to be at a, a certain level of hard science fiction nerd to get through some of that. I tick all those boxes. Um, <laughs> I'm also a huge fan of classic science fiction from like the 40s and 50s. And so I will fire out one more name. Um, Clifford Simak, S-I-M-A-C, uh, started writing in the 40s, wrote through the 50s, 60s, into the 70s. Dozens and dozens and dozens of just really interesting science fiction novels. Uh, his probably best known is called City. Um, he has another one called Waystation that, that's a big deal time and again. But the beauty of books from that time is that they're short, so you don't get into the yes. you know, 900 page books like yes. some of the authors. I, fire I out love now. me some HG, HG Wells. That's it, right? Yeah. You can you can get in and out in 110 <laughs> yeah. pages and you love every minute of it. Yeah. Um, he's a little bit less known, but is a, a fantastic author. And and then I can't get away from authors without talking just for a second about Neil Gaiman, who is uh, more magical realism than science fiction. But. Uh, everything he does, he's a fantastic storyteller. Uh, John, he, you and I have talked about Sandman. I know you're getting into it. Yes. Um, American Gods is is one of his novels that just, uh, I, in fact, I'm reading the graphic novel version of American Gods now because I just can't get enough of it. It's a it's an incredible, incredible book. And I'll stop there. Um, I can keep <laughs> going. I'll, I'll stop. All right. So that was your genre and more than three books. <laughs> there you go. I, I warned you. Now I might have my questions wrong because I, you asked three questions. That's two of them, right? Or is that, or is that just that's the just, first one? That's just one. Oh, so I missed a question. So you might get off easy. Um, <laughs> Cause the only other one I have written down is the, you can have dinner with one character from fiction. Who would it be? And what would you talk about? So this is the question that everybody hates me for. And I have uh, confessed to guests on my show that I was hoping no one would ever ask me that question because I struggle with the answer. And now here we are. Uh, so I will say at this moment right now, if I had to sit down with one character from fiction, it would be uh, the boy. And that's all the name we have of him from Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Um, well, that's a great choice. That that book is incredible. It's a fantastic. So in addition to science fiction, I'm a sucker for the end of the world. I love apocalyptic literature. I love um, books that, that posit what if. And, you know, The Road is, speaking of bleak books, right? <laughs> um, it, very much so. But 
he, you know, so the boy spends his entire life in this world. He's very young when whatever happens, happens. So all he's really known is this world after the event uh, where food's scarce and, and everything's dangerous. And so I would love to talk with him about, um, did, do you realize, did you realize what you'd lost, what didn't exist anymore, uh, but also just how much danger you were in all the time. You know, I know his, his father kind of teaches in the rules and you don't do this, you don't do this, but just did you, were you aware of how much peril you were in? And then I'd also love, so the road ends in a transition point and I won't give anything away, but I would love to find out after that transition point, what happened? What was life like after, um, basically the end of the book and, and he moves on into a, a different phase of, of his journey. So yeah, the boy uh, from the road would be my choice again right now today. That's a great choice. And McCarthy's a fantastic, Mark McCarthy's an incredible author, but oh, that, yeah. book, that book is genuinely amazing. So I, I went back and I, I listened to a few episodes and that those were the only questions I could find. I don't know what I missed. So the, the second question that I ask is just an early experience that <laughs> Formed their reading or writing life. Oh, okay. I see. Uh, it, it's the one that's a little less um, shocking because they, they have an answer, yeah. uh, usually an easier answer. And so uh, it's the one that doesn't always stick out as much. All right. Well, what did, did you, did you write your answer down? Oh, I, I've got an answer for that one. Okay. Um, so as I mentioned, science fiction is my thing. And I've, I've tried to think back to when that became just what I was really into as a reader. And I think I can point to, and I'll do this quickly, uh, three events that happened right in succession. So uh, I was six years old in 1977 when Star Wars came out. And you can do some math and figure out where I am now. Uh, <laughs> but I was six years old sitting in a movie theater watching something that absolutely blew my mind that I just couldn't fathom. And I, you know, it's hard. Like I tried to get my kids to understand how just impossible Star Wars seemed at the time and, and they, they can't get it in the same way. So, so that happened. And then that next year at school, my school librarian introduced me to A Wrinkle in Time, uh, another classic science yeah. fiction work that, again, just began to, to make me think about, wow, there are these worlds that, um, that we can think about and read about. And then about the same book. time, I was a Boy Scout and the magazine that Boy Scouts had serialized um, a, a book from the 60s called The Tripods. It was, again, science fiction, and it was about a kind of dystopian apocalyptic world where uh, robots had arrived from space and had kind of enslaved people. And there was this one boy who was trying to, to get out from under that. Uh, and again, all of those things working together to just demonstrate what was possible and what could be read about and got me thinking about bigger things and worlds beyond our own and, and what else might be out there. And so at six, seven, eight years old, I started reading that stuff and at almost 52, I have not stopped. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's almost like a perfect storm of things to come together at that yeah. age. Yeah. Really. Um, Very much imprinted by those things. Right. Right. A really impressionable age to have all those things happen at once. Well, I appreciate those answers. You survived your own hot seat. I did. <laughs> now, um, by all means, feel free to go ahead and plug all of your information so people can find you, your podcast, which again, I love. I listen to it every time you put out a new episode and uh, all that information, your socials. Absolutely. So um, 
It is okiebookcast.com, and that's O-K-I-E, bookcast.com is the website. You can find uh, all of our episodes are there, some other things that we do. Um, I have a Read Oklahoma Challenge where I encourage people to read a different category of Oklahoma book every month. Um, and so that's there. Uh, lots of other information about my guests and, and then the episodes. On social media, I am at okiebookcast everywhere, uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, TikTok, not so much on TikTok, but, but trying to figure out how to make that go. I, I happen to get TikTok lucky well. that I came up with a name that nobody had thought of yet, I guess. And so I was able to grab those handles in all the places. Um, also do a lot of other book reviews and try to share lots of information in those spaces. And, uh, and yeah, would love to, uh, love to connect. I love talking about books, obviously, um, love helping to connect people with, uh, with, with their next favorite read. Um, just uh, last thing about the podcast it comes out twice a month uh, on the first and third Tuesdays. We're actually talking on the first Tuesday of August. And so I uh, had an episode <laughs> drop today and, yeah. Uh, and yeah, would love for folks to check it out and connect with me and, and say hi. And please do again. I, I do like, I do love your show and uh, you're, 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 I think you were one of the first people I really started interacting with when I dipped my toes into this and uh you're, you're fun to interact with online. And I do, I look at all your recommendations all the time. I actually started copying <laughs> you with the weekly um, updates on what I finished and what I'm reading. Yeah. I started that. Um, and I get a lot of, I get a lot of ideas from you. I recently started graphic novels as well. In the past, I had read the first run of saga and the Watchmen. That was it. Yeah. And now since I've been trying to record more for this show, I, I've read quite a few more Neil Gaiman, who was, just immensely talented. There's, it's insane how how incredible his stories are. Yeah. So I read. Uh, I started the Sandman. I'm actually. I got volume one right next to me. But you Everyone, gotta hurry because the show comes out on Netflix on Friday. Yeah, and I think it's volumes one, two, and three. I think. I think that's what right. It, it's pulled from. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely be looking at that as soon as I get through the three. But yeah, everyone, go subscribe rate, review, all those things for the Okie Bookcast, and follow him on his socials. And please do the same for me if you're not already. Why are you listening if you're not doing it already? <laughs> uh, Sense of Shelf Pod on all the same ones, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. I have an email, senseofshelfpod at Gmail. And Kofi and buy me a coffee and all those things where you can support the podcast. And I'll attach notes to the show uh, where you can purchase mouse on bookshop.org. And that will support this podcast and independent bookstores. So... Jay, I appreciate it. I can't wait to hopefully do this again sometime. I know I'll yeah, never be. Great. I'm not from Oklahoma. I'll never, uh, so uh, you're, you're more than welcome on here whenever you'd like, though. We, we <laughs> might find a way to make an exception. John, thanks so much for having me on. I I will be as kind as you were to me. I love Sense of Shelf. I love the different directions that you go. I really appreciate this set of conversations around banned books, uh, helping raise awareness not just of the fact that books are being banned, but what they are and why we should read them anyway. Right. So and, uh, appreciate the work that you're doing and calling out the hatred behind some of them. Yeah. Yeah. And just love the chance to get to actually talk to you face to face instead of uh, via Twitter and, and other places. This has been great. Yes, it was a pleasure. Um, and thank you. And I wish you many successes in what you're doing. And I appreciate those kind words. And to the listeners, as usual, be safe, read a book and God bless.